on to today's speaker. Perry Marshall, we're very glad to have him back. He's uh, been here several other occasions speaking on the issue of intelligence and, and such. And it's a very appropriate topic for our audience, and Perry is a very appropriate speaker to address this topic with us. Perry has a background, uh, in fact, a degree in engineering, and his life led him from engineering into sales and from sales into marketing. And Perry has enjoyed uh, less success in his field of marketing as he's been able to author one of the definitive guides in Google AdWords, which is used widely throughout that industry, as well as uh, a book called Industrial Ethernet. Brad, or excuse me, Perry lives uh, in Chicago with his wife, and today is going to be speaking from us wearing his hat from Cosmic Fingerprints as he addresses the topic evolution in sharp focus. I invite you now to welcome Perry Marshall. Thank you for being here today. Um, uh, I'm, I'm really glad you came. I was here about four years ago, and, uh, um, and I, I gave a talk, which you, you can listen to it at Perry, uh, excuse me, cosmicfingerprints.com slash Lucent. Um, and uh, what I covered um, then, and I'll just go through it very briefly, um, I got... I got pulled into this whole, you know, evolution, creation, design debate um, probably seven or eight years ago through conversations with my younger brother, and um, I had never really looked very hard into this before. Um, I really didn't feel like I had the qualifications to delve into it, but all of a sudden I was interested, and uh, and I really wanted to get to the bottom. And so I started buying books, and I started going to websites and everything. And I, I, I was quickly drowning in a vast sea of information uh, and conflicting opinions. It's like it seemed like everybody, everything everybody ha said had some validity, but then it also seemed like they were all um, throwing pies at each other. And you know, wow, you know, really, it's a pretty nasty debate uh, very oftentimes. And I thought that was real nauseating. Um, and I was, but I, I was also, I was also very puzzled and dismayed by the lack of technical rigor in the conversations. There was a lot of anecdotal evidence, and and so so I, I had a sense from from my engineering background. You know, there there are in in engineering and in the sciences, there are certain things that you know are true, and then you can build on them. There's things like Maxwell's equations, right? There's things like the laws of physics. Um, and uh, in particular, I thought, well, you know, if, if traditional Darwinism is true, and if all you need is a whole lot of time and, uh, and natural processes in order to get things like hands and eyes and everything, then there must be a whole set of engineering principles that they didn't teach me in electrical engineering school. Okay, because nobody in electrical engineering um, ends up with a new vehicle or a stereo system or a computer by just having random accidents. But at, at the same time, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe there really is something to this. I mean, those biologists aren't stupid. And so I floundered and floundered, and finally one day I had this realization. And uh, here's what the realization was. In, in 2002, I wrote this book. It's called Industrial Ethernet, 
It's published by ISA, which is the largest trade organization for process control engineers. And um, this is all about Ethernet on the factory floor, and it's about the bits and the bytes and TCP IP and things that most people in this room would be very familiar with. And the epiphany was, hey, wait a minute. Every concept that I wrote about in this book applies to DNA. You know, if you go around and look through the world we live in and you make some comparisons, DNA is not like rocks. DNA is not like snowflakes. DNA is not like soap scum in your sink. If you want to make a really direct comparison, DNA is probably more like TCP IP than any other thing that I can think of. Okay, it is a digital communications protocol. And, and all of a sudden, a whole bunch of things snapped in place. I said, okay, now I can start to evaluate this question. And uh, I gave a whole talk four years ago here at Lucent Bell Labs. I'm not going to go into that today, but like I said, you can go to uh, cosmicfingerprints.com slash Lucent, and you can look at it. Um, well, so right now, um, in the typical mainstream evolution design debate, you have um, a number of different approaches of the problem. Uh, these books here are all kind of showpieces. So I've got, uh, I've got Charles Darwin's Origin of Species here. So, you know, mid-1800s, uh, Darwin comes up with his theory, um, and uh, you have books like this one, which was published in 2009, The Greatest Show on Earth by Richard Dawkins, and, you know, this is the 21st century version of, of Darwin. Um, and so you have that side of the equation, but you have another side to the equation. You have a whole bunch of people saying, um, saying, hey, wait a minute. Um, you know, there's some problems with Darwin's theory, and not so fast you haven't quite explained it. So you have, you have books like this. This is Darwin's Black Box by Michael Behe. And in this book, he explains uh, that there's a concept called irreducible complexity where um, you, need, um, you need a certain minimal level of functionality for anything to be useful um, so like a bacterial flagellum needs about 40 parts all working properly before it is useful. And if you only have 20 of the parts, you just have a useless appendage, which natural selection would get rid of. And so, um, and so you, ha you, have a, you have a strong but vocal minority of people objecting to the Darwinian view. And then, you know, then you have the, you know, common descent, natural selection, you know, every life came from a single cell. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna carry you through a really kind of unusual presentation of of things that I've discovered about evolution, and uh, and I'll present this, and we'll we'll do Q and A. Hopefully, I stimulate some some thought here. Um, I was initially fairly skeptical of the traditional Darwinian view. That well, you know, boy, did you know, did uh, did one cell really turn into all the life forms that you have on Earth today? 
Um, eventually, I became convinced, yes, that's true. Um, the reason that I am personally convinced that that's true is there are things like um, there are things like bits of genes that are corrupted that are identical in a primate as in a human. It's sort of like um, your professor knows you cheated on a test if you and your friend have the both exact same identical wrong answer. Kind of like that, you know, it's like, well, yeah, I think I have evidence that you guys colluded on this. Um, it's the same sort of thing. Um, very interesting things. Uh, you could think of a gene as a subroutine, um, but not just a subroutine that, that can be used for one thing. It's really more like a subroutine that can be used for 100 different things depending on the context. Uh, one of the most important genes uh, is the Hox gene, um, and it's in humans and it's in fruit flies, and it's 99% the same. Actually, the, the Hox gene is so sensitive to corruption that one codon uh, corrupted in the Hox gene could be fatal. So you have, you have this exact same gene in both humans and fruit flies. Um, this is really interesting. Whales, this is a diagram of a whale skeleton. If you look at item C over there on the right side, whales have these tiny little feet, and they're buried in, inside their skin, and you wouldn't normally see them, but there's this skeletal structure for legs and feet in a whale, and it's just kind of folded up and tucked in there, okay? And uh, it's, as, it's as though... It's as though the genes are saying, hey, we might need this someday. Keep it around. Okay? It's really interesting if you think about this. It's just folded away, but it's still there. Right? Um, and I thought, wow, what, what an interesting thing. And the normal assumption that most people would make would be, well, you know, if the, if the whale doesn't use those feet, it wouldn't stand a reason that God would put them there just like if he beamed whales out of the sky into the ocean and, and the whale appears, but you wouldn't assume that God would make it that way. Um, and so I, I think there's good reasons to believe in common descent. But when you look at this, it, from, a, from a computer science perspective, from an electrical engineering perspective, from a, uh, the perspective of a communications engineer, um, it raises really interesting questions. So how does that code work? Okay? How did, how did that evolution actually occur? Okay? Um, there are also what we would call suboptimal organs. A mole rat has eyes under its skin, and they can sense dark and light, but they can't do any better than that. But if they weren't under the skin, they would actually be able to focus and see things. So, you know, that's kind of interesting. You have grasshopper wings that don't really work as wings per se. Um, so, again, I see these things as, as evidence in favor of common descent. Um, so let's, let's talk about the whale feet, okay? If, if, something that used to live on land went into the sea and evolved into a whale, it suggests 
that there's some kind of chassis that is, is very robust. It hangs on to things it might need for eons beyond it, it actually being used. Um, it's modular and scalable, okay, because those, those feet can be expressed as just, you know, these little tiny structures, but if some other genes got turned on or activated, they could grow into big feet instead of little ones. Um, there is a very distinct framework that almost all animals share. You have a head, you have an abdomen, you have uh, either an exoskeleton or a spine, you have limbs, and you see this structure all the way across the board. You don't see creatures where there's an arm like growing out of their stomach. Okay? If, if evolution was just random and accidental, you'd expect all kinds of weird things that you don't see. All right? Um, you see that, uh, that, that the, the, the process of evolution responds to the environment. Um, you see that it conserves things that it needs for a long time. And as, as, I'll, as we'll go into this, I'll show you that it's also not accidental. Um, there is a very common atheist belief, it's almost a jingoism, that if evolution is true, therefore, you know, religion is invalid, God is dead, life is purposeless, that does not logically follow. Okay, just because evolution is true doesn't invalidate any of those things. Okay, um, another thing, very, very important point. Evolution is not a given. Just because something exists does not mean it is going to evolve. Um, we got a whole bunch of software engineers here. Is there anybody in this room that has ever seen a computer program evolve all by itself with no outside help and nobody designed it to do so? Has anybody ever seen that happen? Only that right. That happens all by itself. But think of it. So, so Daniel Dennett, famous famous uh, philosopher from Tufts University, very famous atheist. He's famous for saying evolution will happen if you have three things: if you have replication, and variation, and selection, you'll you'll get evolution. It, it'll just happen, you know. And he he preaches it like it's the most beautiful thing in the world. Well, computer programs, do they have replication? Yes. Do they have variation? Can, can copying errors vary the, uh, the, the code of a computer program when you email it to me? Can that happen? Right? And, and, and does natural selection exist on the Internet? Do we, do we prefer better things to worse things? Okay, so they all exist. But nobody's ever seen a computer program evolve all by itself. Yeah, and they're programmed to do it. Yes. Yes. And they're programmed to do it. They never do it by themselves. If I if 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 Paul writes me a batch program and sticks it on the Internet, millions of people can copy it. That program will not evolve unless it's programmed to evolve. 
right? Right? So that's, that's, that's core to the whole point of my presentation, is that evolution is a very interesting process. So, so let's, let's go back to this. Um, this statement right here is the, this is the standard dogma of neo-Darwinism. Okay, right here. Mutations are the random changes in genes that constitute the raw material for evolution by non-random selection. Okay? So what he's saying is random mutations of genes, copying errors of DNA, produce variations, you know, different, slightly different rabbits, slightly different protozoa, slightly different chimpanzee, and, and that every now and then those mutations are beneficial and natural selection selects the benefit, and then you, you get an incremental improvement, okay? That is not true. And it's not true for the reason we were just talking about a few minutes ago. Um, it's not true because a uh, really smart guy from Bell Labs wrote a paper in 1948 called A Mathematical Theory of Communication, he defined things like information entropy, and he said when you add noise to a signal, it increases the uncertainty, and the uncertainty is always bad, and you can never get rid of the uncertainty once it's been introduced. That the process of adding noise to a signal is always a degenerative process. It's never a beneficial process. So what the neo-Darwinists would like you to believe is that noise sometimes makes a signal better. And as a communication engineer, I understood that ain't true. So that opens up a really interesting question. Okay, so how does evolution really work? I became convinced that it was real, and now I was really burning with curiosity. Like, well, if it doesn't work the way he says it works, how does it really work? So I'm going to show you today. I'm going to show you five major mechanisms of evolution, and I'm going to show you a sixth that governs the whole process. And, uh, by the way, most of what I'm talking about has been known for anywhere from 10 to 100 years. It's just uh, you can't read about it in the bookstore. Um, here, here's, here's another version of the same thing. Mutations are random. This is from the University of California, Berkeley, Evolution 101 webpage. Um, I grabbed that a year ago. It's probably still there. It probably still says the exact same thing. Mutations are random. The mechanisms of evolution, like natural selection and genetic drift, work with the random variation generated by mutation. Again, that is false. There is not a single, I, I've been studying for years, I have not found a single scientific paper that demonstrates that this is true. I have not found one. So things are going to get interesting here. I've found that there are two kinds of evolution. There is, there is a kind of evolution that people with PhDs in biology know about and talk about. Um, people who do genetic engineering, um, people who build bioactive medicines, people who study diseases, they have one version of evolution. And then there's this other version that you read about at Borders or Barnes & Noble bookstore. Okay? And this is the one that atheists and college freshmen believe. It's parroted on websites and press and textbooks. 
They say it's random, gradual, undirected, and driven by natural selection. But the PhD version, it's not random. It's episodic. In other words, it happens in spurts. It's strategic. It's driven by something called natural genetic engineering. So let's go into this. Um, evolutionary mechanism number one. Um, this, uh, this creature that you see here is called a tunicate, uh, also called a sea squirt. It's a you know, tubular little animal that looks more like a plant, but it's really an animal. And, um, and then in this next slide, this is a hagfish, which is a vertebrate. Genetically, the difference between a sea squirt and a, and, a, and a hagfish is the hagfish has an almost identical genome twice. Okay, so what appears to have happened um, is that the sea squirt was under stress. It was in some kind of threat to its environment. Maybe it needed to be mobile. And um, so, you know, a strand of DNA, you can think of it as a, as a single stretch of computer code. Um, the, the creature makes a copy of its own DNA, splices the second piece of DNA onto the first, switches some of the genes on and off in the second copy, and an invertebrate becomes a vertebrate. Okay, a process called epigenetics, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, is what switches those genes on and off. And so the same code with double the hard drive space and a new set of relationships between code A and code B results in a much more sophisticated creature. This is called genome, uh, genome doubling. In plants, this is called polyploidy. Wheat, for example, has six copies of its own genes. It's like six copies of DNA, one right after another, right after another. And, um, and the, the reasons why it does that are unclear, but you can, well, are actually very complicated, let's put it that way. But you can think of it as, well, we doubled the hard drive space and we rearranged some of the code, and we got this entirely new set of capabilities. Okay, so that's called genome doubling. Um, so the difference between vertebrates and jawed vertebrates is also another genome doubling. So, so a hagfish does not have a jaw. When you go from fish without jaws to fish with jaws, it's another doubling again. So you actually have four genomes instead of two. Um, this is referred to as Ono's 2R hypothesis, which was first put out, I believe, in 1971. Okay? So, very interesting mechanism that gets you from one species to another in a very short period of time. It doesn't take millions and millions of years for this to happen. It happens very rapidly. Okay, evolutionary mechanism number two. So... Um, so here, this is called a transposon, uh, where you have a you have a, a, a section of DNA, and certain certain genes are known to.
to jump around and be moved from one section of the genome to the other. Now, this was discovered in the 1940s by Barbara McClintock. Uh, Barbara studied corn maize, and uh, she liked studying corn maize because she began to figure out by studying the little colored um, bits of corn on, on, the, uh, on the corn husk, she could tell from the arrangement of the individual uh, corns what the genes were doing. And this was before the discovery of DNA. They knew about chromosomes. They knew, you know, they, they, knew that they knew there was this thing called a genome. They didn't fully understand the four genetic letters. Uh, Watson and Crick discovered DNA in 1953. But about 10 years earlier, she would damage chromosomes. And she, would, she figured out by growing these plants, which is very slow and laborious, by the way, she figured out by growing these plants that if she damaged the chromosome, the plant would, would repair that damaged chromosome by copying another piece of, of, of DNA or chromosome onto the damaged piece. It was, it, it was sort of like what happens when you're playing a DVD and it's a little smudged, and you see the picture trying to correct itself. It's, it's trying to approximate what this picture should be from what the last one is and what from the next one is. Okay, she discovered that corn maize was doing this, and, it, and she called it jumping genes. Um, her colleagues, for the most part, thought she was crazy. She won a Nobel Prize in 1983 for this. Okay, it is now well known among not regular freshman kind of biologist, but PhD is very well known that all kinds of organisms do this. They rearrange their own DNA, and they do it in copy, paste, cut, paste, block transfers, and they, and they make those cuts at certain lines. Um, another example of the same thing. If we take a bunch of bacteria and we put them in a Petri dish and we starve them, let's say we put a chemical in that Petri dish that some organisms can digest. The bacteria know that it's food, but they can't figure out how to digest it. So they will start mutating their DNA. The mutation rate will increase by a factor of 100,000, and they will start rearranging their DNA, uh, splicing it into as many as 100,000 pieces and rearranging the code and eventually some of the bacteria will figure out how to digest the citrate. And then the other ones will die off, and the ones that you have left now have evolved the ability to digest citrate. Okay, this is not accidental. Everybody who does computer programming knows that nothing like this could ever be accidental. Okay, it's actually astonishingly sophisticated. There's a mystery here that deserves to be explored. How does a bacteria know how to do this? A protozoa under stress splices its own DNA into 100,000 pieces that produces a new adapted protozoa. Um, now, how many of you know that uh, you have to be careful with antibiotics because germs develop resistance, right? Everybody kind of knows that. 
Has anybody ever told you how the germs develop that resistance? Give you an example. You're taking an antibiotic. To the germs, this is a poison in your body. So you got, you got a bacteria that's floating around. It's trying to kill you. And it's like, uh, they're killing me back. I got this poison leaking into my cell wall. If I don't get rid of this poison, I'm going to die. So that bacteria will go around through your system, and it will look for another microorganism that has a pump. And it will find one, and it will grab the DNA from its plasmid. Um, a lot of cells have something called a plasmid, which you can think of as the open source code repository. Okay? It's the Dropbox folder. And, um, it, and it, will it doesn't even have to kill the organism. It grabs that section of DNA. It pulls it inside its cell walls. It finds the piece of DNA that codes for a pump, splices it out, inserts that code into its own DNA, builds a pump, and pumps the poison out of his system. Then, then once it's successfully done that, it puts that code in its Dropbox open source repository, or plasmid, as the biologists call it, um, and it shares it with the other bacteria of the same species because they're all trying to kill you together, okay? They, they do this in an organized fashion. When, when, you, when you feel you're coming down with something, okay, you know, like we've all, like, we, we went outside, we got too cold, and we come in, and all of a sudden... You know, we're shaky and we're coming down with something. Okay, you didn't, catch, you didn't catch that while you were outside. It was already there. The bacteria were multiplying quietly, waiting for a signal to be shared by all the bacteria that says, okay, boys, let's go. That's how it works, okay? And so they are working together. So now they share that code with each other. And that's, why, that's, that's the problem with antibiotics. If you don't kill them now, the next time they come back, they're going to be worse. Why? Because they all have pumps now. Okay? So it's like the bionic bacteria versus your bionic immune system, and your own immune system works the exact same way. So it's an arms race. This is how nature builds extremely robust creatures, is, you know, okay, let's duke it out. You guys go get code wherever you can find it. We're going to see who, who can do the smartest job of building the best bacteria or the best immune system. Um, okay, evolutionary mechanism number four is epigenetics. 200 years ago, a guy named Lamarck hypothesized that parents passed learned traits to their offspring. And um, that was a prevailing theory 200 years ago. Then Darwin came along. And Darwin's like, nope, random variation, natural selection, that's it, pal. That's it. No, you know, you know, uh, you know Jewish boys don't inherit circumcision from their fathers and, you know, and people, you know, and, and all that. And, and, and Lamarck was laughed out of biology, okay? All that crazy guy. Well, you know what? It turns out that Lamarck was right all along. Um, learned traits are passed 
to from parents to children, they are passed through a process called epigenetics. Epigenetics is a way of switching genes on and off by basically covering them up with a chemical sheath that prevents them from being um, read, okay? So if you can imagine um, a book with, uh, imagine a book where a whole bunch of letters and, and maybe some of the sentences are grayed out so that you just skip those and you go on to the next one, you could make a book, one page of a book, say something completely different just by making certain words disappear, okay? That's epigenetics. Now, an example of epigenetics in action would be the Dutch famine in 1944, I think it was. There was a huge famine in Holland, and, um, and, and they did a longitudinal study of children who were in utero during the Dutch famine. And they found that they had significantly different metabolism than everybody else. And they discovered that this was through epigenetics, that, that, um, that, that they had a metabolism that was geared for a starvation environment. Now, this is a fairly young science right now, but it looks like there's all kinds of things that we pass on to our children um, that or they're, they're, they're at least shaded a certain direction or having certain proclivities based on the environment and activities of the parents. So I don't know how deep the rabbit hole goes, but there's no question that learned traits are passed to offspring. Um, evolutionary mechanism number five is symbiogenesis. Symbiogenesis is when two species completely different from each other merge together to form one. The best example that I can give you of this is lichen. Lichen equals algae plus fungus. That is what it is. So we've all seen lichen on rocks. It's the green flaky stuff that you see on rocks, right? I think we all know what algae is, and we all know what fungus is. Lichen is algae and fungus locked together in a mutual reproductive cycle that makes, makes them function for all intents and purposes as a single organism. Okay? This is actually very, very common. This is a major component of evolutionary history. Um, we have in our, um, in, in microbiology, there are really simple cells that don't have a nucleus, and there's complex cells with a nucleus. And the prevailing theory right now is that the next step up above that, which is an even more complex cell, is a merger of the simpler two, okay? And so the nucleus, um, the nucleus uh, of, of your cells um, at one time was a, a bacteria that didn't have a nucleus. And so it's like it's an organism within an organism. And so now they, they reproduce as one, and their DNA has merged together. And, and so like fungus... 
uh, can, can survive in some environments, and algae survives in some environments, and lichen can survive in environments where neither, fun uh, al neither fungus nor algae could survive by themselves. Now, what's interesting is that symbiogenesis um, only began to get any attention in the United States um, in the last 20 years or so. Um, uh, I, think, I think the first publications about it uh, were maybe 30 years ago. I might be a little off on that. But you know what's interesting? The Russians discovered it in 1905. Um, this is a book. This is called Symbiogenesis, A New Principle of Evolution. This was published in English in 2010. It is a translation of a book written in Russian in 1928. Okay? Um, and it's so accurate that not many changes had to be made to make it a valid textbook for now, okay? So uh, I want you to stop and think about this for a second. Um, Lamarck came up with a theory of, of, of inherited traits 200 years ago that was laughed out of the academy. The Russians have been talking about symbiogenesis um, for 100 years. Uh, Barbara McClintock discovered jumping genes in 1944 and won a Nobel Prize in 1983. Um, horizontal gene transfer, which is, you know, the bacteria sharing code with each other, that's been known for decades. And uh, how many of you have heard about all this stuff for the first time today? Well, isn't that interesting? Why isn't somebody telling you how evolution really works? Why aren't the evolutionists telling you how it really works? Do you think there might be a few things that a software engineer could learn by studying genetics? If, if your software programs knew how to share code with, with each other without you having to come into the office, wouldn't that be pretty interesting? Okay, how come nobody's talking about this? It kind of bugs me. That's why I'm here. I could be doing something else. I'm here. I'm kind of passionate about this. All of these evolutionary mechanisms are systematic. They're not accidental. Okay, they're not random. Um, and frankly, neo-Darwinism, you know, the, the dogma that I showed you earlier, it's dead. I mean, there is no evidence, really, that random copying errors produce new species. Um, there's a great book, by the way. It's called, it's called, um, um, it's by Susan Mazur, and uh, I'll, th I'll think of the name of it. Uh, the, the subtitle is, is uh, a, a, an expose, oh, it's Altenberg 16 an expose of the evolution industry. And she just interviews all of these different people who, for the most part, agree that the current evolutionary theory doesn't really work, and they just have all these different angles and all these different things. And, 
in, in some sense, it's kind of a jumbled mess, and that's the point of her book. Like, you know, the world is still trying to glom on to a new theory that, that, that really works. Um, but there is no evidence that the, the neo-Darwinist process actually works. There's evidence of common descent. There's evidence of evolution, but it doesn't work the way everybody told you it did. Okay? Nowhere in science literature, and by the way, I've been, I, I've been putting this out on the Internet. I've had millions of visitors to my websites. I've been debating all kinds of people. I've been out there for a long time. And, you know, it's like open invitation. Okay, somebody show me a paper that de conclusively demonstrates that random copying errors produce evolutionary progress, and nobody can seem to find one. I've never found a single research paper that demonstrated that random mutations result in significantly new features. Um, all known beneficial mutations are systematic. They follow some kind of process, some kind of a structure, uh, like the, the ones that I talked about today. Um, the biggest mistake in the 500-year history of science is, in my opinion, assuming that random copying errors in DNA supply the raw material for evolution. Um, it's just a huge mistake. I think it's just as big a mistake as thinking that the sun revolved around the earth. It might even be bigger. You know, um, if you believe the sun revolves around the earth, how much does that really change your daily life? Okay? But if you believe that life is random and accidental, doesn't that kind of affect your whole outlook on life? Um, evolution is in, intentional. It's systematic. It's very elegant. Like, okay, how do those bacteria figure out that, oh, yeah, that's a pump. I, I want that. How do they do that? Well, I'm not sure. One thing I do know is bacteria talk to each other. They have words for you and me and us and them. They have linguistic capability. They can edit their DNA just like a computer software programmer edits code. Like bacteria are pretty smart. Um, it's profoundly sophisticated. And I, I, I don't know how you can escape the conclusion that it's designed. I've never seen any natural process purely from the laws of physics that explains any of this. Um, show you a couple other things. Uh, DNA versus TCPIP. I, I imagine most of you guys have some familiarity with TCPIP, don't you? Is that a fair statement? Well, um, TCP is binary. It's ones and zeros. DNA is quaternary. It's ACGT. Um, computer codes are arranged in bytes. DNA is arranged in codons, so, you know, a byte is eight bits, right? A codon is three quaternary letters, so uh, it's 256 possible states versus 64, okay? Um, it's three-to-one redundant. So if you look up, you can go find this in any biology book, you go look up the genetic code table, the 64 possible combinations map to 20 amino acids, um, and each 
each amino acid can be rep represented by three possible arrangements of A's, C's, G's, or T's? Well, it turns out that the, the redundancy scheme is optimized. Um, it's, it's more optimum out, out, out of any million possible combinations it's more optimum than 999,999 of them. It's one in a million in terms of its optimization for does, does an error in transcription result in, an, in a wrong amino acid? Okay, so there's a three-to-one redundancy. Also, it has something called forward error correction. Um, everybody who deals with the nitty-gritty level of computer science knows that you have things like checksums and cyclic redundancy checks and all these sophisticated ways of both detecting and correcting errors, and DNA has all of those things, and they're better than the ones we've come up with. And in many cases, they are eerily similar, all right? Um, it, it repairs damage much like a, a DVD player does. It makes a best guess of what the missing data is. Um, how many of you are familiar with the, seven, the OSI seven-layer model? Okay, here's a, here's a comparison between DNA uh, and the seven-layer model. So in the physical layer, you, in, in computers, it's the wire. In DNA, it's the helix. And, and the bases, the data link layer is the voltage on the wire, such as ones and zeros. Um, the, in DNA, it's the arrangement of the base pairs. Uh, base pairs. Um, the network layer is like you know Ethernet, Wi-Fi. In this case, it's amino acids and proteins. The transport layer, like TCP/IP and UDP, corresponds to non-coding DNA and genes. The session layer uh, corresponds to gene regulation, gene expression, epigenetics, and the immune system. So, like, when you get into the interesting evolutionary stuff, it operates at the higher levels of the seven-layer model. Um, the presentation layer um, in, in DNA is chromosomes, transposition, horizontal gene transfer, and the application layer, the highest one, is things like genome doubling, symbiogenesis, and cellular genetic engineering. Now, this is not an exact correspondence, but it's very close. I came up with this myself. It's, I, I didn't find this in, in some paper, but I would propose to you that this is a pretty accurate way of looking at the genome. Matter of fact, it's a much more elegant way of looking at the genome than simply thinking of it as chemicals. There's a lot of people that will tell you, we just need to understand organic chemistry better and we'll solve the mystery of life. No, you won't. That is like saying, we just need to understand iron a little better and then we'll understand the operating system that's on that hard drive because it's, it's, you know, because it's on that, that oxide layer. No, you're not going to learn anything about an operating system by studying iron. And you're not going to learn anything about a genome by studying chemistry. This is software. This is a software problem. Evolution is a software engineering problem. And I believe 
that every single breakthrough that every single one of you are looking for in your department, in your product, there's an answer to how to do that somewhere in genetics. Okay, and it, it's time for us to stop pretending that life on Earth is an accident because it's not. Atheism has a horribly impoverished view of science. Now, I also need to take issue with the Christians. I mean, most of the argument is between the Christians and the atheists. It's not so much the Buddhists and, you know, whoever else, okay? So I have some, I have some issues. Christians have been in denial about evolution for like 150 years, okay? Like, well, you know, that doesn't quite seem to fit my, my Genesis story. Well, kind of depends on how you read the Genesis story, doesn't it? Like, maybe we should take another look here. I mean, actually, there's, there's been a large number of Christians who, for more than a century, they're like, there's no problem. Like, what's the problem here? Um, and maybe we can get into that at Q&A time. I don't know. We'll see. But, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly willing to. But the stonewalling. Okay? So atheists have too low a view of nature. And you know what? Christians have too low a view of God. They sit there and they go, well, the only way this zebra could have been here is if God beamed it out of the savannah because it's too much different from this other creature. could have never happened. Okay? What if you had a, a belief about God? Where, where, where God can, can design a process that he can leave it alone, and like this gentleman was saying, what if that process can self-optimize because it's been so well designed from the word go? You need a higher view of God in order to accept an evolutionary paradigm. Okay. By the way, it also invites a view of God that's maybe a little more complex and a little more nuanced than believing, well, you know, God created in six days and there was no death. The Bible doesn't say there was no death before the fall. We can talk about that. Um, real quickly, I want to go into a whole other cool thing. This, this gets my geek juices going. Um, I imagine a lot of you might be at least a little bit familiar with the golden ratio, 1.618. Um, true, false. It's the, ra- if, it's the ratio um, A, div- uh, A equals, uh, sorry, probably on this other. It's, it's where um, the golden ratio comes from A plus D divided by A equals A or B. A over B. That's right. So I'm sorry. You can look it up. I'm, I'm under pressure. I can't think straight. Um, you'll look it up. And it's found all over nature. It's all over the place. Um, th- this, this little spiral here um, is, is a sequence. Uh, it's, it's related to the Fibonacci sequence because as you, Fibonacci is 0, 1, 1, 2, 3, where every letter is the previous two letters added together. So 0 plus 1 is 1, 1 plus 1 is 2, 1 plus 2 is 3, 2 plus 3 is 5, and so on. Okay? Well, eventually, the ratio of Fibonacci numbers becomes the golden ratio. And so it's, it's, a, 
It's a formula for scalability is what it is. And so you can make this little spiral where you go one, one, two, three, five, eight, and, and you get this ever-growing spiral that goes around and around. Uh, the pyramids have a golden ratio of height to width. The Parthenon does. Well, I discovered something really interesting. Um, quick time and a BMP decompressor is needed to see this picture. Well, okay, so I'm not going to be able to show you that. So it turns out that the golden ratio um, is used in a checksum arrangement for DNA error detection. Um, how many of you know the word ergodic? It's, it's kind of a bizarre word. The word ergodic simply refers to the fact that in English, E appears 12.7% of the time and Z appears 0.1% of the time. And that every letter has a certain uh, frequency of how often you tend to see it. And it's different in German, it's different in French, right? But you, you have these patterns. And I before E except after C is an, an ergodic pattern. Uh, okay, so um, it turns out that DNA also has an ergodic pattern where the genetic alphabet has codons that are equivalent to the letter E, and they're very common. It has other codons that are equivalent to the letter Z, and they're very uncommon. And when cells replicate, they check these frequencies. Um, so this is a form of checksum that, that like you have in computer science. Um, and so, if we arrange the genetic code table in a particular way um, and divide it into symmetry regions, the, the codon populations have ratios based on the golden ratio. Okay, so I'm going I'm to briefly show you that. So, what we have here is... Um, we, this is a piece, this is the genetic code table, and it's the range T, C, A, G, and T, C, A, G, okay? And so you, you can see there, there's a very specific order to every element on this table. So here's what we're saying. What we're saying is if we took a strand of DNA and we split it in half and we only looked at one side of it, then we're going to have all these codons. So, so TTT is a codon, and TTC is a codon, and TTA is a codon, and so forth. And these are all genetic letters that map to amino acids, which then build biological structures. Okay. Now, Jean-Claude Perez is a researcher in France. He published a paper. I helped him with it. Uh, it was published in 2010. In, in September in a journal called Interdisciplinary Sciences, Computational Life Sciences, and he, he discovered this pattern, and here's the pattern. If you, if you take, take that strand of DNA and you, and you locate all the appearances of the letters on the left and you count them up, how many TTT codons were there and how many TTC codons were there and how many TTA codons? So we're going to add them up, and we're going to put the total in a bucket. And then on the right, we're going to add those up and put those in a bucket. The ratio 
of yellow to blue is exactly one-to-one to within an accuracy of 0.1%. And this is true of most chromosomes in humans and chimpanzees and bacteria and HIV, all the way down. Now, if we, if we divide the table into a different symmetry like this, the ratio of yellows to blues is 3 minus the golden ratio divided by 2. If we arrange the table this way, the ratio is 1 to 1. If we arrange the table this way, it's 3 minus the golden ratio divided by 2. If we arrange the table this way, it's 1 to 1. And if we arrange the table this way, it's 3 minus the golden ratio divided by 2. Spooky. Well, it's okay. So every every person, every creature, these exact ratios, either one to one or three minus the golden ratio divided by two, will be observed in the table. Meaning, it's not random. It's an orgotic. It's an, here's another way of looking at it. So this, this is the genetic equivalent of the letter E, and it's mirror codon, which you could almost call E prime. It's actually TTT and AAA. This is the genetic equivalent of the letter Z, and it's, it's uh, mirror codon. That table creates a stair step of 32 very specific frequencies that says this letter has to appear this percentage of the time or there's an error. Yeah, the law of this, this is completely violates what the law of large numbers would, would lead you to believe, be, to expect, because the law of large numbers would make these all the same. If the neo-Darwinists were true and evolution was driven by random mutations, every letter would appear would have the same likelihood of appearing because they're made of bits, right? If we took, if, if we took ASCII bits and we randomly generated bits and then we, we, we used ASCII to determine the letters, all letters would be equally probable. But we have an alphabet and a language that follows a very st specific statistical pattern that is unique only to that language. It's unique only to DNA. No other language fits this pattern. English has its own pattern, but this is a highly mathematical pattern. Okay? So it's true in humans, chimpanzees, simple organisms, virus, HIV, most but not all human chromosomes. Uh, Jean-Claude Perez, the guy I referred to, he's worked for 20 years with uh, Luc Montagnier, who discovered the HIV virus, and he's done a bunch of HIV research. And he discovered that the chromosomes that are susceptible to HIV are the ones where this matrix does not apply. In other words, he's suspecting that the checksum matrix in the human genome broke down at some point for some chromosomes and got corrupted, and that's why those genes are susceptible 
to invasion by HIV. So, so there's, like, there's a little brokenness in, in the checksums. Okay, and so the implications are methods of error detection, of error corrections. Um, this, uh, this matrix governs transposon activity. So, so Barbara McClintock says, how does that chromosome know to copy this piece over here? It knows how to because algorithmically it knows, it says, if, if I copy this section of DNA over to here, it will obey the checksum ratio that I'm looking for, okay? So there's some kind of mathematical formula that's being used to govern the integrity of the entire genome. Um, I, I describe this as tracks for evolution to, to run on, um, and, and it proves definitively that evolution is non-random. Uh, Dr. Perez said you can think of it like a deck of cards, like you have a deck of 52 cards. You don't know which one is going to come up next. However, um, if you've already pulled two aces out, you know there's not going to be any more, right? And so, so you, you, you know what's left based on what came before because it obeys a, uh, a certain formula, okay? And so creation evolution, I think, is completely the wrong question to be asking. The real question is naturalism versus design. And, um, and so... Um, Again, I think Christians and atheists are equally guilty. They're both, they're both afraid of what science is going to tell us about God. And we need to not be afraid. You know, I really believe what Jesus said, that the truth will set you free, and I think that's true in everything. Um, and I think we're doing an injustice to theology and science by um, perpetuating this pie-throwing debate where people just slam and insult each other and talk past each other. I think there's some very big discoveries that we need to, to find. Um, and I, I think if you really understand evolution, it's an incredibly powerful argument for design. Um, and I just want to point out something. Let's look at what the, what the Bible really actually says. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, trees bearing, you know, according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Like, what's the problem with evolution? Like, what's the problem here? Like, what, why all the stonewalling? Um... Repeat the question. Uh, he said. He said God had to see that it was good or know that it was good. I. I think. Uh, I. I would go look this up in three or four other translations before I, you know, kind of quibble about that one. Um, and God said, "Let the water team with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky." So God created the. Creatures of the sea and every living thing moving with it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Like, okay, well, so what's the problem with evolution here? Like, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't get into a lot of detail here. It's a very broad framework. I want to know, so what's the process by which this happens? Because that's fascinating. Um, so now here, here's, here's where I would, I'm going to leave you with a thought. Uh, I would invite you to consider 
that the, that the real thing that people are kind of trying to struggle with here is, oh, you know, so, so you're saying we came from apes, apes, we came from primates, so that just means we're primates, and I don't really like that. Well, so hang on a sec. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and birds of the air, blah, blah, blah. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Okay? Now, let's say that man came from an earlier ancestor. Well, I think, I think the, the significant verse that you want to look at is this one. The one that says, and God breathed the breath of life into the man and he became a living being. That's not oxygen that it's talking about. You can go find theology books a thousand years old and they'll tell you that it's not talking about oxygen. That's talking about his spirit. That's talking about what the thing that makes humans different than animals. I think, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, any chimpanzees that have the net worth of Warren Buffett sitting there trading stocks, okay? You know, there's, there's things that humans do that animals don't. And, and I think that's the defining thing. Uh, if you read Genesis 2, it's written from a whole different perspective than Genesis 1, and it's trying to say a different set of things. But if you, if you read Genesis 1 and you assume that a day is a period of time, if you assume the story is told from an earthly vantage point, it all fits modern cosmology and the fossil record tit for tat. And... I believe we can bring a higher view of, uh, of science out of theology, just like what happened in the Middle Ages, and we can say, you know, I expect we're going to have a treasure trove of discoveries in DNA, in genetics, in cellular biology, things that I can apply in engineering and apply to medicine because I have a high view of what's been created. So that's, that's all I got, and I'd love to take some Q&A from you guys. Okay, got a microphone here. Uh, it's a lot to digest. Sometimes folks who feel like we're drinking water from a fire hose here, and uh, much like, um, you know, if we are used to things a certain way and somebody makes you put on a different pair of shoes, it can feel really uncomfortable. So let's go ahead and voice that. Uh, go ahead and raise your hand. I'll bring a microphone to you, and you can lay it out. We also have the ability for questions over the bridge. In the back, of course. I'll be right there. Come on over. Where is it? Back here? Yes, sir. Now, uh, it's, a, it's a very creative uh, presentation. You know, we really appreciate that. Um, you, you made a statement saying that the sun revolves, uh, this, you know, it, it, it's a popular belief in you know, all religions saying that the sun revolved around the earth. And... Uh, it was proved wrong by a lot of uh, a lot of astronomers, including uh, Galileo, with the adaptation of the telescope. Right. Um, yeah, he improvised it and and saw a lot of things, which um, you know, which he got into trouble for. Right. Um, and you made a statement saying that it didn't change anything. Um, well, so I, I mean, how did it change your life? I think that it changed, it revolutionized science. It has changed my life because this thing wouldn't have been created without the fact that, right, 
Right. Um, you know, we have satellites. We have Absolutely. satellites revolving around the, around the Earth. Right. Which I think that uh, the 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 popular uh, po- popular belief that the sun revolved around the Earth that was shattered, mm-hmm. and that probably got a lot of people uh, interested in uh, astronomy. Mm-hmm. And uh, yep. I strongly believe that that resulted in the in the creation of modern science. Uh, it, it's possible. I mean, it's it's probably a theory, but it was a major component. For uh, absolutely. Sure. Yep. So I just yep. wanted to see what your thought on was because I didn't. I, I I don't think that the statement is probably not. So so let that's a great question. So let let, let me put a little different spin on that. I am not in any way putting down that discovery or minimizing its importance. What I would invite you to consider is that the neo-Darwinian view of evolution is at least as damaging to science as the belief that the sun revolves around the earth. At least as damaging. Why? Because it leads to an assumption that life is accidental. You know, there's a very popular term that's been floating around for 30 years. It's called junk DNA. There's a whole bunch of people that have been saying for 30 years that 97% of your DNA is junk. Now, the only reason anybody would believe that is because they, they have a low view of nature to begin with. Okay, it's, it's a very arrogant statement. What they're saying is we don't know what it does, therefore it doesn't do anything. It's an absurd, absurd claim. And it has now been proven to not be true. Actually, the 97% of DNA that doesn't, of DNA that doesn't code for proteins, that's where all the interesting stuff is, okay? They thought, they thought that, that DNA is just there to make proteins. It's just about chemicals. No, because the other 97%, it's, it's sort of like the 3% that they knew what it does, that it made nuts and bolts. And then the other, the, the other 97% told you how to take the nuts and bolts and build an airplane with it. Well, who's going to get grant money to study junk DNA? You know, we got to get rid of these. Thank you, Paul. We got to get rid of these derisive terms. These a creationist would never come up with a term like that because a creationist has too much respect for nature, and we got to get rid of this. And this is just as bad as thinking the sun revolves around the earth. It's 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 a horrible mistake. And not only that, I, I think I think people that advocate theories like that should be stripped of their credentials and ejected from the academy. They have no business vandalizing the study of science with these nutty assertions. Uh, A scientist's job is to study something and find out how it works, not declare that it's junk. So we'll soapbox there for you. Does that kind of give you a different perspective on what I meant by that? Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. Oh, let me get your microphone. Uh, you made a comment that the one of the problems you see with the current theory of evolution, it says it's random, right? And you don't think it's random. Right. 
But I remember I've been reading these, I mean, come every so often that people thought that there were two types of lives. I forget, cell type or something. And they never thought that would be a life somewhere. But then they discovered that there were some uh, creatures that were living in the hot stream down in the ocean. And they were quite surprised by such a life form. Mm -hmm. Similarly, there was something other saying that phosphorus is very critical yeah. for life. And then right. suddenly they discovered, no, it's really not. We have seen life form which can switch uh, arsenic. Arsenic, right. Arsenic instead of phosphorus. What I'm trying to say is that everything that we thought was well-designed, we somehow slowly uncovering examples in the real, in, in the nature that those rules actually are not really, I mean, there are examples. We just don't know how to look or where to look. Right. And we haven't been looking hard enough for all the variations. So based on these two sh short anecdotes, it looks like it's pretty random. We just haven't looked hard enough. You'll find examples of each and every random variation. We just have to look hard enough and probably long enough. Well, so, so they, they discovered bacteria that are based on arsenic instead of phosphorus, right? Exactly. So we arsenic... For the longest time that that's ever possible, but it is possible. Right, okay. So it's a robust design. No, but you said it was not possible and certainly it's possible. I didn't say it wasn't possible. Well, they hadn't thought. discovered it. Okay, similarly the life form. People thought there were two types of lives and they figured out there is a third type of life that they figured it just recently became known about. Wait, so, so what how does, what's random about that? Why is that random? Okay, there were two things, and then now there are four things, and they found an example of all four. Which if each, each of the four options is possible, it is random. If there are only four choices, and you found an example of all four, there is nothing else to discover. So I have four choices instead of two, therefore they're all random. Yeah, equally possible, equally probable, and there are examples in life in the, in the, on Earth. Okay, so I... That's what random is, that each option is equally probable or possible, and I just proved... But they're not equally probable. Well, Arsenic is, is, is an extreme minority, um, and it only uh, happens in this certain environment. What I'm saying is that the, the makeup of the current Earth might have uh, uh, promoted one variation versus the other, but nature has example of all variations. Why certain variations are preferred, I don't know the answer. But just saying that it is not random is also not true. Okay, there's supposed to be Q&A rather than a one-on-one -on -one discussion. By all means, carry, carry on the discussion, stay, stay for afterward. We want to give everyone else an opportunity if there are any other questions in the room. Okay, because I know, I know that we're a bit over time here, but very, very compelling and uh, a paradigm shift for uh, Christians uh, who have a creationist view because there is nothing threatening about science. In fact, science has its origin uh, both in, among Christians and, and its uh, modern average. Do we have something in the back, John? Yes. Um, first of all, thank you, Perry, for coming. Uh, all the research and all that. Let me stay first. I feel I... I'm in a position, I believe there's a creator. So you know, you know where I come from. Good. But before today, uh, I was just operating more from a macro level that as far as all this Darwin evolution, you see the tadpole, the fish, the monkey, the, the human. Yeah. In my belief, if the evolution theory holds, there is continuous evolution going on as we speak. Mm -hmm. So I want to see today a human being with a tail somewhere because I truly believe there's 
continues going because the evolution theory holds. So, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. Obviously, you've done a lot of research and things to also uh, uh, provide some of those uh, uh, scientific research evidence about this by design. My question, question is more like comment on your thoughts. A lot of people around in the universe that try to play God and human cloning. What's your thought about human cloning and, and, and in terms of your, your common thought on that? Do you think they ever succeed and, and you know, things like that? Well, you know, I personally don't necessarily have a, well, a, a disagreement with, with human cloning. Um, and by the way, this is not really my area, so I, I haven't thought through these things as hard as other people have. But we will um, be talking about that on the 27th in cool. bio, bioethics, so come back for that. Come back, yeah. Um, I think what, what I think is an issue um, is in research doing things like throwing away human em embryos. I believe those are humans. I, I believe they, you can scientifically and objectively define, yes, that's a human. Their DNA has been determined. They're, they're on this path. I, I think we all know that a cloned human is not... You know, if, if I'm a clone of you, I am not you. <laughs> You're you and I'm me, right? So there, that's really two different issues. So I don't know if that answers your question. Kind of. I was just thinking, do, do you think they ever succeed in terms of a uh, human-created human? They ever operate truly like what the creator designed it? Well, boy, I don't know. That's, I don't know. That's, that's a huge, ponderous question. Um, maybe they will. I don't know. Anybody else? This is the same question that I've asked last in the last presentation also. Why, why do you want to keep that? Well, on the webcast are not benefiting from this discussion. Listen, I want to interject here because we're, we're way, way over time for folks. But uh, you have a, a survey. Please fill that out and get that, hand that in to us. I have a certificate that I want to just pass on to Perry, uh, and thanks uh, for his coming to us here. Perry, by the way, is a very much in-demand speaker. Um, you may not be aware of it, but in, in his field, uh, he earns a very, very good living providing uh, advice. And so we're very, very fortunate to have someone of his caliber and expertise to join us today. I want you to join me in thanking him for his coming. Please come back on Tuesday as we uh, take on our next event, Home Free Even Me, right here. Thank you.